With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Screen Talk is brought to you by our friends at Vimeo. All you need to sell your film or series on Vimeo on demand is a Vimeo Pro account. Go to vimeo.com slash start selling and use the promo code ERIC20 for 20% off Vimeo Pro. Vimeo offers a generous 90-10 revenue split. You can set your own price, offer rent, buy, or subscription options, create promo codes, and add bonus features. And there's an embeddable HD player with a purchase button, which means people can watch your trailer and purchase your film anywhere on the web. Join other top filmmakers and showcase your work in a polished, professional way. Your film might even end up on the IndieWire podcast. This week I'm recommending The Mend, the darkly funny debut of writer-director John McGarry, which stars Josh Lucas as the wayward brother of a man going through relationship problems as the siblings endure a chaotic weekend of rampant parties and pithy arguments. Trust me, it's a first-rate melancholic romance that suggests Robert Altman by way of Woody Allen, but it also has a contemporary twist. Use the promo code ERIC20 to watch The Mend with a 20% discount on Vimeo Pro now. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, My name is Tom Powers. I'm the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival. And I am a great lover of my weekly dose of Screen Talk, the uh, IndieWire podcast um, that you're going to get treated to today. If you've uh, never heard it before, I encourage you to look it up. Uh, You download it on Apple, which is uh, where I listen to it, or or any other means. Uh, The hosts of Screen Talk are... Uh, Eric Cohn of IndieWire, the uh, lead critic of IndieWire, and Ann Thompson of the Thompson on Hollywood blog on IndieWire. And when you listen t- uh, to the show as regularly as I do, uh, you you uh, will become familiar with uh, Eric as the uh, as the the, the film uh, critic Estite who uh, brings in um, uh, is a champion of of all kinds of different uh, cinema. Uh, and Ann Thompson, who is the uh, consummate Hollywood insider uh, with all the best sources, and, uh, and they bring a great um, combination of, of personalities and insight um, to this conversation. If, uh, if I have any quibble uh, with, uh, with Screen Talk, it's that they are not immune to uh, the disease of the film industry of talking too much about award season uh, if you play a drinking game and have a shot every time they say award season, you will die of alcohol poisoning. Uh, please welcome Eric Cohn and Ann Thompson. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> Very kind of you. We love that Tom listens because it always puts us on edge knowing that people like that are out there and they may at some point in time call us on something being correct or short-sighted. Or the only way I can do this is to have the illusion that it's just the two of us talking to each other and no one else is listening and to have actual live people <laughs> listening to us is a little unnerving. I think we can handle it, and uh, we can also handle talking about award season because it means that Tom will get progressively drunker as we go on. So, Well, what's interesting in a way about this is that when you're in Toronto, um, uh, a lot of publicists and distributors and 
talent agents, and like I just ran into Hilda Queeley in the lobby of the Intercontinental, and she handles Kate Blanchett and Kate Winslet, the two Kates. And a lot of uh, decisions are being made right now about what categories people are going to be um, going in and, and how, how are movies getting received. Toronto really is this crucible for giving information based on how audiences and critics respond to movies to the people who are going to make the decisions about what the Oscar race is. This is a fascinating award season to be talking about in the context of Toronto because one movie, the last time we were speaking about it, didn't seem to have the kind of momentum that it's gathered just in the last 48 hours spotlight. You are, it's interesting because um, I will argue that you were being very conservative and, and you didn't think Spotlight had the right stuff, and I did. I really did in Telluride, and I, it's been confirmed here. But that's sort of how it works. It's like Telluride is the, the launch pad or Venice, and then K Toronto is sort of the, the icing that makes it real in a weird way. But one of the things that I think can be very misleading about that on a certain level is the extent to which these reactions are still happening in a vacuum. I mean, we don't know, first of all, the, a movie like Spotlight, I think it's, it's very accomplished. Um, it's, it's a very, I don't know how many people here have seen it, uh, but it, it, it's very polished and very well acted in certain ways, but it's also, it's, it's relatively muted compared to, say, a movie like The Martian, which really, really played well here. And I think that was more of a surprise to people. I agree. Um, I adored The Martian, and I actually think that Matt Damon may in fact be nominated for that role because he carries it so well and it, 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 it's a, it required a, a great deal of skill and it's sort of a comeback for, for Ridley Scott. But that said, The Martian is a way, way more of a commercial Hollywood movie and you never know if the Academy will give it that... Um, it, I think it's going to get such good reviews and it's going to be a hit and I think it could roll all the way. And it, it's, it's a little bit like Argo in the way that it celebrates... American ingenuity and smarts. Yeah, and I would say it's a substantial improvement over the book, which wasn't particularly well-written, but very hard science, and this puts it into this crowd-pleasing formula that works really well. And unlike Interstellar from last year, it's not sort of overshooting with its ambition. It's very much trying to deliver to the audience rather than making them think too hard. Cor correct, it and it isn't overselling the science at the expense of the storytelling. I like the fact that it, the science is smart and it plays like it's real, but the other thing that's lucky for The Martian is that it isn't in the shadow of gravity, and I'm afraid that hurt Interstellar because it couldn't compare to gravity. Few things can, but this year's award season is probably going to be one in which nobody's going to be competing for d exactly the same kind of slot. It seems like the sort of thing that's much more disparate. I mean, a movie like Son of Saul, which showed up at the Cannes Film Festival earlier this year, this sort of bracing, unconventional Holocaust movie of sorts, has been steadily gaining steam. It played great at Telluride. It played really well here. I almost feel like this could be something that's a part of the best picture race, even though it's a first feature from Hungary, which is not traditional. This is dangerous because I want to say um, that Son of Saul is one of the best movies I've seen this year, last year, the year before. It's just up there in my personal pantheon of great movies. And I want everyone to go see it, and I want it to get as many people as possible because it's difficult and it's challenging. 
And I have, I'm a, I mean, the same is true um, with Beasts of No Nation. It's like if, if people go out wearing their Oscar hopes on their sleeve, and Sony's saying, we're going for it, we're going for best picture, we're going for best actor and director, I almost want it to be a slower climb so that it's not disappointing. It's an interesting question about strategy. And last time we really spoke about Spotlight, you were telling me how Michael Keaton is really being pushed as this supporting role, but I think he's actually the star of the movie in a lot of ways. And so that that aspect of how these conversations unfold is one that I always find to be sort of mysterious but also confounding because it changes the perception of these movies, whether or not they're actually what we think they are. All right, I know what you mean. So this is what I was saying. There's this jockeying going on right now because all these companies want to make the right choice. And if there's a, a gray area, you know, Kate uh, Blanchett, she's going lead for Carol. Carol is about her. That's her character. That's it. Rooney Mara got Best Actress at can, therefore she looks like a best actress. But she, people still seem to have her in the supporting category. The actors are often calling the shots. So in the case of Spotlight, and it's the actors' agents that are telling the distributors, Mark Ruffalo, Michael Keaton, want to be in the ensemble, and they're all supporting, and no one's the star. So that's how it's playing out. So you just roll with it, whereas that other Boston movie that seems to be having some kind of award season traction, Johnny Depp in Black Mass, that's a big lead performance. He is that movie, wouldn't you say? And there's a comeback narrative for him. Uh, but just in terms, forget about Oscars and stuff, just in terms of what I loved here, I prefer Legend to Black Mass. Maybe I'm an Anglophile. Or maybe, maybe you I'm a Tom, Tom Hardy, Hardy fan. Yeah. Yes, that's true. But let's say he's a movie star. Let's say he compelled me to look at his beautiful face every second, even when he was playing the ugly guy. Maybe I want to look at him and fall into that screen with him in a way that I didn't with Johnny Depp. Let the record show that Ann Thompson briefly said, forget about award season. <laughs> I'm, I've got Tom Power Flag sitting planted. over here. I want to keep my bona fides, uh, you know, correct. Well, but it, but there is certainly a lot more going on here. There's something like 270-odd movies here, and not all of them are, are part of the awards race. That's one aspect of this part of the year that ends up informing a lot of things we talk about. But there's a much bigger picture, too, which is questions surrounding the marketplace. And we touched on it a little bit last week when we were sort of anticipating things. But one of, one of the really notable events so far this year from an industry perspective is that the first sale of the festival was not a movie. It was a TV show, an Icelandic drama from the director Baltazar Kormatur, uh, who also directed Everest, which is opening in a couple of weeks, that was picked up for uh, broadcast rights by the Weinstein Company. This is Trapped? Trapped. So, Did you see it? I haven't seen it. I've heard great There's things. There's no time for us to do the TV. Yeah. We have TV people covering TV. I did see one TV show. I, I, as, as a quick tangent, I'll recommend it's it's The Returned, Les Revenants. It's a it's a French TV show. I believe you can still watch the first season on Netflix. It's wonderful, actually. Really incredible, textured Twin Peaks kind of mystery show, um, and uh, that was quite something to see it in the context of a film festival. But also to see that picked up, the, the, the show Trapped. already had the show on, The, the Return, right. For, right. for several seasons. But to see that, that Trapped was the first show picked up, I think that sends a really interesting message in contrast to the way the rest of the marketplace has been going. 
Do you know whether he's running the whole? Is it a is it a, a movie or a series? What is it? It's a series, but he but he's directed all the episodes. Cool, so cool. That's the Kerry like, Fukunaga exactly, model. Um, so, um, but Beasts of No Nation. I'm I'm really curious to see where it goes from here. Whether whether it builds enough buzz to deliver on the promises that they're making on the on the Oscar side. Right. I mean, that just sort of feeds into this whole question of whether you are really shooting for this big theatrical release when sometimes the biggest theatrical response you're going to get is at a film festival, and maybe the best way to p- reach people beyond that is to look at other kinds of opportunities. Opening night at the festival, we saw the Michael Moore film. Michael came by here, and we were, you were talking to him at another one of these live conversations, and uh, you know he was saying how it's not so much about how much money somebody wants to spend on the movie, it, it's how it gets out there. And that's somebody in a very unique situation where maybe money isn't the biggest part of the deal. Yeah, I think but timing is important to him because he has, you know, we know about Michael Moore that he cares deeply about the causes that he's espousing in this film and wants them to be part of the national conversation that's going on in an election year. So he, you know, you know, Michael Moore wants to get in there and have an impact. And it's actually it's a it's a really good movie, and and uh, I was surprised on a certain level to see that he was willing to restrain some of the things that we might expect from this filmmaker after so many years to make such a such a satisfying movie to so many people restrained in the sense that it's it's less about catching people off guard the gimmicks aren't really there. It has a very sort of clean premise going around he's the world. Still pr- he's still in there, though. Sure, Michael he's a Moore. character. I would say slightly more lovable than before, but maybe that's just my own changing worldview. It's kind of hard to figure out in that respect. No, there's an as- there's absolutely a travelogue aspect to it, and I love the way that he just picked these places like Slovenia and and Finland. You know, it, it, it's 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 exotic at the same time that he's showing us that America certainly doesn't have all the answers. Yeah, I mean, and, and the timing is, is, is apt, of course, with the election season, though I wouldn't consider it an awards movie per se. We don't know what it's going to be released, whether it will qualify, but I would argue that there's a difference, to borrow from something Tom Powers was saying in, in earlier, there's a difference between playing well for audiences and playing well for the uh, critics or the, the Academy. And I think in the case of both, uh, he named me Malala, which played Telluride in here, and played well to audiences. And where to invade next, the audience response is clearly very positive. And there's also um, Barbara Copple's movie, Sharon Jones, which played really well, apparently. Which is also uh, looking for distribution. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things I think is really great about that is that Toronto is creating anticipation around these movies that would otherwise not necessarily have that kind of context for them. Uh, The Michael Moore movie will go to New York Film Festival next, and... It'll probably play pretty well there, but in a much more limited context. Definitely, but no, that's what Toronto is now. I think um, where Telluride and, and Venice may have stolen a little bit of the awards thunder. That it's still part of the, as, as I said before, it's still very much part of the awards conversation, but it's very crucially part of the market of, of the acquisitions market, and it is very important for the buyers to see this these movies that are for sale play for an audience. And yet we're not seeing a lot of big deals. One of the films that I truly loved when I, w- I got a sneak peek at it at Telluride and now it's been playing here is Anomalisa, this film co-directed by Charlie Kaufman and, and Duke Johnson. 
stop motion animated thing that's like nothing you've seen before. R rated. R rated. I mean, this uh, for adults. The first claymation graphic sex scene is, is a badge of honor for this one, among many other things. Uh, Buyers saw it a long time ago. The price was considered too high, and now it, it won a prize in Venice right before it played here. And they're taking their time trying to figure it out. But I find it to be sort of frustrating on some level that people think this movie is a tough sell. When on some level, I feel like everybody I talk to about it is more excited than many of the things here that are being considered part of the awards race. Maybe it's because on some level the awards race creates certain expectations for traditional experiences. I never see movies in Oscar season that are considered, you know, groundbreaking and therefore a part of the awards conversation. Never? Gravity w- might be some sort of exception on some level because of the technical accomplishments. But even something like 12 Years a Slave, in spite of the fact that I thought from the filmmaking standpoint it was groundbreaking, I think the, the marketing surrounding that movie wasn't pushing that element. No, um, it was trying to reassure people that they could see this movie and not be thrown into the pits of despair, you know, and I think Beasts of No Nation has a similar um, question. I mean, it's interesting. Obviously, I think the awards, uh, the idea is that conventional films can reach more people, but at the same time, if you don't have daring innovation, you know, you're never going to move forward. So um, I think there's room for both. I mean, there's a sense that the older art house audiences go to the theaters and there needs to be some sort of prioritization of those needs in order to sustain that side of the marketplace. And I wonder if there's some untapped potential for giving people something different that isn't being fully exploited by distributors today. I agree with that. I agree with that completely. And I think part of what's happening is that some of the more... Um, interesting stuff is ending up on VOD and doesn't get a theatrical release and doesn't get attention that a a theatrical release will actually give you because people are so scared and so conservative. Even Harvey isn't releasing Macbeth the way he would have in another era. Exactly, but but at the same time, managing expectations for a movie like that. And expenses. Expenses, exactly, and and an interesting transitional time for that company. We don't have to go into that. They held on to David Glasser. Yeah, an interesting story there. We'll have to do some digging for the next episode. I think it's pretty obvious. I think he held them up for some money, and he got it. And They needed him, and they needed to send the message that he was important to them and that they were steady as they go, and they needed to send that message, and they did. Yeah, so, I mean, there there are things like that happening, and, and then that company picking up a TV show, I don't know if it shows that they're in a transitional moment, but They've it does. They've been into TV for a while. They've they, been doing they Project, do Project Runway. Runway and things like that, but this is an international show. It's fun talking to Matt Damon and asking him about Project Greenlight. You know, he and Ben are back on, on board with an indie producer, Effie Brown, who we really like, and I think it's going to be interesting to see that show again. I, I was a fan of the first one. Something else you're picking up on there is the way in which it sometimes takes movie stars to keep the industry more interesting. Uh, They have to be willing to take certain risks that uh, other people can't necessarily do. I mean, you and I both had some interesting encounters with George Clooney at this festival who produced David Gordon Green's film with Sandra Bullock, Our Brand is Crisis. And that was a movie that uh, I couldn't have seen a studio necessarily making the way that they did without somebody like that pushing it along. That's fair. It's a very kind of small uh, prestige picture. In a weird way, I think our brand is crisis, which I will say to you is not 
building huge buzz here. Um, I think everybody likes it. It's it's a, str a strangely tweener, hybrid, not a gritty independent and not a major glossy studio film, yet it has these big stars in it. So it's, it's, it's conf I think it might be actually sort of weirdly confusing for people as to what it is. Well, what it is is a Sandra Bullock performance. I mean, I think Very she, good. she carries the movie, and which is fascinating because not everybody may know this, but originally this was a male character, this, this strategist who goes to Bolivia to help market a, a politician. And uh, Clooney, at one point, I think, was even considering directing I it. asked him this question. He wanted to direct... I, I, thought, I thought you were saying he wanted to act in it, which he didn't. Right. He wanted to That's direct That's what a lot of it. people think. Yeah. But it, but it was a character that I think other people could have seen a Clooney-type take on that role. And uh, she make, she's totally convincing. It doesn't feel like this was written for a guy or something. There's no, there's no disconnect I there. love it that she's wearing flat shoes and she's letting her hair go. And, you know, she obviously is sort of depressed and not feeling good about herself. And at the, at, at the Q&A, they asked her, uh, somebody asked her about her hair. And all the women, she uh, pleaded with the women in the audience to understand what it means to let your roots grow out. <laughs> I feel like every year we have this conversation about women roles and whether there are enough strong ones and certainly there could be more but this does seem like a pretty good season to be talking about some really strong women performances I'm encouraged, I'm encouraged to see Brie Larson finally have uh, a, a role that, that she can really dig into and, and Room does is Room is and that's another movie that's playing very well here and building on the momentum and it needed to that it started at Telluride yeah, and I, I would get behind that even more than Spotlight, though I realize it's a harder sell. It's a much, it's much more of a grim movie about a kidnapping and so forth, um, and and also harder to describe to people. But I would way. argue that Room is innovative in the way that you were fighting for, and and it's getting away with it. Yeah, I'm absolutely on board with that. I mean, you make some tough choices at this time of year in terms of what 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 do you really want to support? I don't want to be the naysayer for Spotlight. I think it's very accomplished, and I've enjoyed seeing Tom McCarthy evolve and then briefly stumble with the cobbler and then bounce back with a, with a very mature drama. But at this stage of the game, it's easier to argue with you about it. And, and no, uh, I think part of what you were trying to say was that it was – because what Spotlight is is it's a, it's a really good screenplay – and really good directing of a certain kind that has to do with lots of people talking to each other in rooms. And that isn't necessarily a, a recipe for huge commercial success. But in this particular case, actors are going to love this movie. They're going to eat it up. And if the actor's branch likes it, you're home free. Well, and it's not just because of Brie Larson. It's because of this newcomer, Jacob Tremblay. I was talking about Spotlight. Uh, well, Spotlight just then. But the actors will like that too. Exactly. So I mean, that's but that's a really interesting kind of showdown in that respect because you're talking about basically. A I'm two not sure Room gets to Best Picture person. though. That's a different. It's question. a tougher sell. That's a much. McCarthy's been around for a while. Um, the other question is whether Open Road. I mean, Tom Ortenberg is a very veteran and knowledgeable and experienced guy who's, who used to work at, at Miramax and, and knows the industry. So he knows what to do. But Open Road is still a relatively small company. And they've never had a best picture contender. Last year they had Rosewater, which I think w people thought maybe would be in that conversation until they saw it. So Spotlight is one that seems to be sort of creeping its way in and now has sort of erupted onto the scene. 
and 45 years is doing well in Toronto. It, too, needed to score at the next level. I don't know if anybody's seen 45 years yet, but that's another one that it's easy to lose track of movies like that in this conversation because it's another sort of, it's this very gentle two-hander, but it's Charlotte Rampling's best performance in who knows how long from this really terrific director, Andrew Haig, who did Weekend, who created Looking, also a Screen Talk listener, he said. And, um, ah, they all tell you that, Eric. <laughs> Hey, buttering you I up. I didn't solicit. He just said it. Um, but but that but that I mean I'd love to see that movie go go a long way. IFC had such an interesting experience last year at this time of year with Boyhood. But they learned a lot and they took Boyhood all the way and they could do it again. I, it would be nice to see that. But but again, I mean, by the time we got to this time of year, Boyhood had many many months to be out there just like Grand Budapest Hotel did. Well, in a weird way, 45 years started in Berlin, so it, and it's been building its way across the, the, the festivals that it's played. So it's just a question of, of getting that momentum going. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just, I wish that there was some way to take those kinds of movies and just sort of copy and paste them at the front of the race, because I, I, I worry sometimes that... It's on, it's on my chart. It's on my chart. Well, if it's an, on Ann's chart, then, then, I, then I'm not as worried as I was before. I know there are some questions out there, and, and we have tons of time, but I already saw one hand go up, so I don't want to uh, make you lose it. We have a microphone, so that'll help us with the recordings. Hello. Um, you mentioned that um, French TV show. I didn't catch the name of it. What was that? Les Revenants. Uh, okay, that's it. Thank you. <laughs> so that's, that's a good sort of reminder that... Uh, Everyone should check out the primetime section this year. It's, it's, not, it's not a huge selection of titles, but um, the variety is really interesting. I didn't see Heroes Reborn. But I am going to see the Keith, Keith Richards uh, miniseries, which Netflix produced. And to go from something like Les Revenant to that is, is a really interesting showcasing of the kind of range of stuff on display there. The other uh, documentary that's playing here that uh, got a good reaction uh, the night I saw it was Janice. Um, and that's from the director uh, Amy Berg, and that's another for sale title. And if you thought you knew Janis Joplin and you knew all about her and you thought you'd seen all the concert footage there was, this w director somehow managed to sort of bore in and, and reveal a different Janis, and I feel like I know her now, and I highly recommend that one. Similar to the Amy Winehouse documentary in that no, sense? No, Amy Winehouse, I mean, I admire that one. It's made very differently. With, with, but you could say they're both archival in a way, in terms of how they make the film, but the destructive trajectory that Amy Winehouse was on is, is much more the the story, and in with Janice, you learn much more about her than whatever it was that took her down at the end. That's what I would say. I was curious about Beasts of No Nation. Uh, do you think there's a risk of the Academy sort of reacting to it as though it bites the hand that feeds? And I know it is getting a real release, but in the sense that it's maybe taking the theater experience away from movies? I've been thinking about this a lot, and um, what you're what you're um, bringing up is something a lot of us are discussing. We're talking about it because nobody really knows the answer. And if you think about it, who is really resisting Netflix the most? Who, who is in a position to be angry with them? It's the exhibitors. It's the theater owners. They're the ones who are mad at Netflix. I don't think the consumer or the average Academy member who is an... Everybody uses Netflix. I remember going to a screening where the logo came up and everybody applauded. 
This is in LA. This is in an academy, you know, context. So I, I, I know they're they're putting it in theaters. So the perception will be that it's in theaters. It's going around. It's going through Bleecker. It's going to all the landmark theaters in the country, um, on a national scale, uh, indie theaters. Um, and I think it's actually uh, going to be viewable by all the Academy voters on the big screen. Will they perceive it as, as or, or maybe they'll watch it at home and more people will see it. And that's what Academy voters do anyway. Well, They're they just have, waiting for their screeners. Yes, so. exactly. So I, 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 this could be a little bit of a, uh, a new wrinkle, and I'm curious to see how it plays out. The, more, the bigger question, Beasts of No Nation, do they want to see the movie? Is it too violent for them? Is it too off-putting? And in the end, they watched 12 Years a Slave. They did and voted for it. Right. I mean, it, it, it's actually a really unique challenge in that respect, not just in terms of Academy members, but in general as a home-viewing experience. It's long. It's well over two hours. Much better to see that one on the big screen in my humble op. I don't know if any of you guys have ever paused something on Netflix and seen the running time and thought, oh, I guess I have you know, half an hour left. I may as well make a sandwich or something like that. If I had done that in the middle of the Telluride screening, where, where I saw it, I think I would have had a very different experience with that movie. Because it, it takes you on a journey. It does, and it, and it, and it takes its time. It takes its time, and then it, it, it gets to certain brutal moments early on, so you know what you're in for. So you really have to commit to that experience. And I also don't think it's quite... It's not quite as viscerally yeah. horrifying violence um, as I had expected. I think it's toned down slightly because it's all from the point of view of the boy, and it becomes more surreal as you go along. I would argue that the violence in Legend or Black Mass is much more off-putting than the violence in Beasts of No Nation, even though you know this child is going through a horrifying experience. Well, Black Mass is an interesting point of contrast, actually, because Black Mass, is, it's engineered in a certain way to, to make the violence part, part of the, the drama to, to show just how intense this character is, whereas the violence in Beasts of No Nation, I think, is more of sort of a coming-of-age process. This guy is waking up to the horrors of the world around him, and... Uh, not fully on board with the, with what he's witnessing, but also doesn't have any other kind of recourse. It's a much more complex process in that respect. To, to go back to his, his question about Netflix, though, which I think is really interesting, I remember when that movie didn't get into the Cannes Film Festival and people speculated, well, maybe Cannes... That has more to do with the, the competitive nature of getting a slot at the Cannes Film Festival makes it easier for Cannes, for, for Terry Frimo, to say that's an animated film, that's not a theatrical film, and, and eliminate some of the possibilities. That's their close-mindedness. Right, but I just remember that people were speculating about it back then. There's so much uh, kind of hype around the idea of this Netflix release, which is essentially day and date on a certain level, but I also have realized, I mean, you talk to people around the world. It is day and date. It's day and date, but it's day and date on a different kind of scale. You talk to people around the world, and Netflix is, is already, they haven't gone completely global yet, but it's already having a global impact. 65 million is the global number of subscribers. And, and yet this movie will actually be released in theaters by Bleecker Street, right. which is this, this newcomer 
not that it's being run by people who are newcomers, but but Netflix untested. is running the show. So in Telluride in Toronto, Netflix has already had a couple parties. They're spending the money. They're controlling it. They're using Bleecker as a service deal kind of situation, and Bleecker delivered the theaters uh, to the deal, and that's how the deal got made. So they're the ones who had to deal with the angry exhibitors. Correct. Yeah, Netflix doesn't really care. They don't, ha- they don't have to worry as much about that market, except that it gives them a little bit more credibility in this existing model. Um, also, Landmark is a theater chain that, um, where Beast of No Nation is the perfect movie to play. I mean, it was in their interest to play that movie. It's a, big, you know, it's a high-profile film for them. Uh, I've got a bit of a long-winded question, but um, I've heard, spoke to a lot of people who saw Room, and... The perspective of it has been sort of shifted based on the film they saw just before it. So I saw Spotlight, which sort of put me in the mood for it. And also Brie Larson is sort of perceived as more indie uh, um, and possibly commercial than awards, uh, you know, aspects. And um, so do you think the mood and perspective will affect the chance of an award contender, especially Room? It's a really interesting question for a lot of reasons because... Mood is such an intangible thing. It's not something that you can detect from marketing materials. A trailer is designed to convey mood, but it's not always accurate. And a movie like Room has a few different things that make it sort of a challenge in that respect, one of which is that it's almost a spoiler to explain some of the things that happen, although the trailer does spoil those things. So um, I would say... <laughs> try to was go, ever thus. Go and quote if you can, and uh, and... Don't even read the book because it's really faithful. I, I wished I didn't have that reference point. So that, that in itself is something of a challenge because I think by the time a lot of people catch up to Room, they're going to be very familiar with certain aspects of it that are a surprise. The yeah, Brie- that's really too bad. Yeah. But as far as Brie Larson being perceived as independent, I don't know. The Academy has become more independent in terms of its membership. So who, who are we talking about when you talk about awards? We're talking about those 6,000, 7,000 people who are uh, actors and directors and writers and all that. And so first we need those actors to see it, I think they will, and to like it. And I think that's a great performance. So I think she's in. I don't think um, – there are many people, if you think about it, from, from uh, foreign – uh, directors and, and talent uh, to uh, the doc branch especially, which has been growing in uh, greater numbers than any other branch. There are all sorts of people in the Academy who you would qualify as independent at this stage. And, and by the way, when the Indie Spirits and the Academy go back and forth, uh, they overlap a lot. But I think he is referring to a specific ecosystem. I mean, we haven't yet seen Greta Gerwig in the award season conversation, but she's been everywhere, and she's been in big movies, but I think she's still identified with a separate kind of community of filmmaking than some of the bigger movies that we're talking about here. And Brie Larson, on some level, I think has also been associated with that world almost entirely because of one movie, Short Term 12. Which broke her out into much, much bigger uh, opportunities for parts and uh, turned her into uh, a, a working actress at a much different level. That being said, if that movie had been released better, it, w- it didn't really get much traction. All that mattered was the casting director saw Brie Larson and understood what she could do as an actress and put her in movies. That's all that had to happen. But, I mean, it, it, if she had been sort of part of the awards conversation, that when that movie came out, 
this movie made. She have been was a part story. of the independent film communities awards consideration at that stage because the right. movie was so small. Yeah, exactly. I follow. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Whereas with Room, it, it does feel like maybe there's an evolution here. It's still very much a small movie, but it's being perceived differently. And the other part of the equation is A24, a company that has steadily been establishing its brand in a, in a, in a way that few distribution companies They're doing very to do. well, but Room is still an independent film, and Room is still a small film, and Room has to become a hit. That is still a question mark. Of course, A24 did really well with that Amy Winehouse documentary in theaters this year, so this would be the next step for them, would be to push this movie into the awards conversation. They They're haven't yet try. done that. So it should be interesting to watch how that, how that movie in particular unfolds in the next uh, couple of weeks and months. So what are the strange little uh, bizarre arcane movies that you've seen that you want to promote today, uh, Yes, the, ar- the arcane Eric Cohn picks. Um, I'd love to, for everybody to go on Thursday, if you're still at the festival, to see a movie in the platform section called Neon Bowl, which uh, I've been asked to moderate the Q&A for because all the platform films have critics and journalists moderating Q&As for them. It's uh, from a Brazilian director named Gabriel Mascaro, who made a movie not a ton of people saw outside the festival circuit last year called August Winds. Uh, but he used to be a documentary filmmaker, and he very much uses a documentarian's approach to the way that he works with non-professional actors in these kind of isolated communities to capture their lifestyles. This one is about basically a Brazilian rodeo. She's already cracking up because she knows it's not her thing. No, I'm <laughs> cracking up because I always hope that you're going to give a short answer. <laughs> hey, we got tons of time here. And... Uh, and, and, and it's beautiful. It's, it's all textures, and, uh, and, and it really gives you a sense of place in a way that few films can. So I hope people check that out. But there's another movie we, we, we could dig into. Yeah, I'd like to dig into this. I'd like to ask you why you were so kind to High Rise. So Ben Wheatley, really fascinating British filmmaker, has been steadily getting his name out there. He makes these kind of grimly entertaining uh, black comedies uh, about British society in different kinds of ways, down terrace, kill list, sightseers. This is his biggest project yet. It's a much bigger scale. It's, it's an adaptation of the J.D. Ballard novel, High Rise, about this London class war. And uh, it's very, very messy. I found it, incredi- it found it incredibly entertaining. But the messiness, I hate to say it, the messiness is part of the point. It's about a societal collapse. Okay. I went along with it for a while, partly because I will confess to you that Tom Hiddleston can do no wrong. Well, he... And he's he naked. Have he is very naked movie. in a very delightful way <laughs> in this movie. But I will, I will say that the script left a great deal to be desired. Go ahead. Have a messy, destructive, you know, men, you know, raping women. The women characters in this are extremely uh, one-note and very disappointing. Sienna Miller plays one of them. You know, they're, they're, this is not... Um, a movie for women to watch, frankly. There's nothing in it for them. It's about wanton male destruction, and it's not well written. I wouldn't say... Well, first of all, it's written by a woman, Amy Jump. I don't care. Who's written all his films. <laughs> but, but uh, and I do agree That's that... his wife, correct? I, I'm, I'm not clear on that, on that much. Um, and it's based on a novel as it, well. It is based on a novel. Fairly faithful outside of some contemporary elements Still, there. Still, it has to be clear to us. If, if we haven't read the book, we have to know what's going on. And there, 
I, I'm sorry, but there are some scenes in this movie where there's, they're talking to each other and, and making plans about, you know, how they're going to, the, the rich people. It's, see Snowpiercer, okay? Just go see Snowpiercer. They're good companion pieces. Snowpiercer is like 50 million times better. Well, see, now you're overplaying it. No. <laughs> we, we've argued about that one before. But, I mean, I, I feel like much in the way that I would, I would underemphasize enthusiasm for a movie like Spotlight, which I think, again, very good, very traditional kind of movie-going experience, I want to overemphasize something like High Rise because I find that there, there's a lot there, including the fact that it could lead you to discover a filmmaker whose work I find to be a very rich way of looking at British society. Definitely go see Sightseers. That was beautifully written. But but I, what, what I like about a movie like High Rise, again, is that it's going for something very extreme and strange, and it feels like it has a purpose consistently. And, and visually, it, it's marvelous. There's a terrific recurring motif of Hiddleston in this elevator that ref- that has it's covered in mirrors and reflects him into an infinity. And I'm not going to delve into a precise interpretation of what that might be saying about you know the the kind of sense of sameness that society is imposing on these people. But I guess I just did. Um. But partly, what happens in a movie like this is that there has to be a certain suspension of disbelief. You know, you're going to go along for the ride. And I figured that out pretty early on that there was an absurdist kind of of over. Um, it, it was it was it was extremely stylized and and. And ev- everything was going to degenerate. It, give, it p- plays its hand. It lets everybody see where it's going to end up. And you have to go along for the ride. And if you if you keep being thrown out of it and not buying it and not uh, able to understand how point A leads to point B, you're kind of lost. Well, look, it's better than the other Tom Hiddleston movie here, apparently, although neither of us saw it. Neither of us have seen it. Why are we bad-mouthing it? You're bad. Well... When we get a chance to see it, we can return to it. We can decide for ourselves whether it's bad or not. But it, but it is interesting to note that he's in two very different kinds of movies here in that respect, that he's in this sort of wacky genre kind of thing. And he then survives High Rise in a way that I found uh, admirable, actually. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it really has been a great year for him in that respect. And, and who well, knows the one that he's good there. in that's coming up is Crimson Peak, which is um, what he's really good in, because, uh, in a good movie. And, and that's Guillermo del Toro's gothic romance with Jessica Chastain, which I highly recommend. Which is um, one I didn't have the luxury of seeing early yet, and, and it's under embargo, but that's okay. The words say out. nice things. No one's going to no get mad one cares. at me. Industry secret. Um, other questions from the room? Happy to keep it going as long as you guys have have those. Um, the other thing that I, that I, in, while people think of others, I, the other thing that I wanted to bring up with you is uh, the way in which Toronto pitches into the rest of the year. So it's kind of dying down now. I mean, there's a whole other week left, but after that first weekend, it's not quite as crowded. We have about a week, and then there's a bit of a pause, and then we have New York Film Festival. And New York Film Festival could change things in terms of the movies that we're talking about this year. There, there are a well, few crucial spots. Well, it will be a confirmation slots. for Steve Jobs, which we saw in Telluride, it, you know, if it plays well in New York. Um, I'm pretty sure it will. Um, and I'm pretty sure it'll be a major Oscar contender. Could it be a Steve Jobs versus Spotlight? We've seen those movies. It so. already is. That's what it is. And that's actually a really great showdown because I, I can get behind that sort of thing. I mean, it's... It was really fascinating to watch the, the whole Boyhood Birdman conversation unfold because I thought those movies had to be movies. You know, they couldn't be TV shows. There was something so explicitly cinematic about Birdman them. is an example of a movie that was extremely innovative and made it all the way to Best Picture. 
Exactly. Yeah. So I guess there are a few other counterexamples to go back to that earlier assessment. Another question over here. Yeah, so this is the first year that TIFF has had the um, episodic uh, strand, and obviously there are other festivals that are doing that as well and have for many years. I was just curious from a critic's perspective what you think of that um, uh, trend and as film critics how you address that in given festivals. That's actually really related to what I was just saying. I mean, last year, Boyhood and Birdman, those could not have been TV series. There's something I think that's really crucial about this distinction between those two media that is lost in this conversation about being the golden age of TV and so on and so forth. And I have to tell you, as nice as it is to watch two episodes of a TV series like Les Revenants in a theater, it leaves you wanting something more. And so in that sense, it's more of a marketing strategy than it is a showcasing of a complete work of art. And so to me, I still feel like film festivals are for movies. And the primetime section is a nice add-on to allow TV to, to, to essentially acknowledge that TV is part of that equation. But movies still have a different kind of role to play in our culture. I think what Cameron Bailey and the folks at TIFF were doing was recognizing that the, um, the movie business, the entertainment industry, is changing. And the two-hour movie which still exists and will continue to exist, isn't the only form of filmed entertainment available to people now. And I have been taking a lot more of my time on television, and that's where you see the actors and you see some a lot of movie talent is going over there. It's become a totally different ballgame. It is no longer the ne plus ultra to always be in movies. Now everybody goes back and forth I will tell you that Kerry Fukunaga told me that he still wants to make movies. And so, uh, you know, there are a lot of filmmakers who still do, and they will. And I'm not worried about the death of the two-hour film. But I, it is impossible not to recognize the television is very much part of the conversation. Right. It's just not a fluid sort of thing. In fact... We should eliminate the word conversation from our conversation because we use it too much. Well, it's an important part of what we do. The... The thing that I've noticed is that if you talk to a lot of filmmakers who try out TV, the learning curve is really difficult because the process is just so different. And the demands of the network are very different than a studio demands and so forth. So there are actually a lot of filmmakers who I think have been trying out TV because of this perception that that's what you should do who are having a really hard time of it. Not everybody can be Kerry Fukunaga and just do he that. He doesn't want to do it again. I mean, he says he will be open to something again, but he's really looking for film. Right, but the, but the main takeaway is that they really are two separate media. They're two different ways of telling stories, and they're different kinds of opportunities to find audiences with different industries. But it's also interesting that the television model is being challenged so that it's not just the showrunner, the writer, executive producer, showrunner. It, it can be the director that becomes seriously uh, committed to setting the tone, and if he doesn't stay or she doesn't stay through the whole thing, at least it's it's um, there's there what he what Fukunaga brought to True Detective in season one was so extraordinary compared to a relatively a relatively work a day season two. That, that's true. I gave up after one episode. It's <laughs> like uh, Tom Powers has a question. Powers, all bring right, it. bring it on. Um, you know, it's been uh, wonderful listening to you. You know, talk about these titles, and the, you've probably name checked fifteen or, or twenty titles, and. 
I always think as a programmer that I want to remind listeners that there are 289 uh, feature films uh, playing at the Toronto Film Festival. So there's many layers um, to this festival, and and sometimes there's a top layer that that gets the most discussion, but there's an opportunity to, to discover all kinds of things here. No question about it. One of the films that I just saw this morning, which you might qualify as more mainstream in your way, uh, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, I loved Re- Rebecca Miller's Maggie's Plan. Um, I did too. With, with, speaking of Greta Gerwig. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was unexpected, actually, from her. I've, I've been a fan of her work all along from the beginning, um, but uh, I think this, is, this shows her as a c- comedic writer-director, and it shows Greta Gerwig at her absolute best, but also Julianne Moore and Ethan Hawke. It's a, it's a triangle that, that really works. Julianne Moore with this hilarious fake Dutch German. accent. German. Is it German Dutch, or Dutch? Dutch, I was told, though it's, it's ambiguous. I mean, I actually think it's actually very consistent with somebody like Gerwig in the, in the sense that it's this jittery New York screwball comedy that seems to only get made with her attached now. And uh, but but it's very sharply written and it's and very I think enjoyable. It'll sell. I think someone will pick it up. It's it's one of the acquisitions titles here. Though I would say that's probably not the kind of sort of below the surface movie that Tom might be referring no, to. No, I know, I know. Well, we, you you we, the what's the one? Uh, it, it, there was a Telluride film that's playing here that is picking up a lot of buzz. I think it's the Guatemalan entry. Ix I guess, Ix is that the Canul. one? You, yeah. yeah, very very gentle kind of textured. Guatemalan film about uh, a young a young woman in in this village, uh, and it's sort of a coming of age story. But um, a tougher movie, I think, in, in any kind of environment to to re- to heartily recommend because it's it's a very it's kind of a small and assuming kind of experience. But but it w- it's quite strong. And Heart of the Dog is picking up more buzz here. Laurie Anderson's beautiful diary film. So yeah, people cry. That's what I've heard. I mean, if you're a dog person, it's traumatizing. So. <laughs> Tom wanted to add something else. It's a funny thing that happens because before the festival, when I spend time with my fellow programmers uh, who spend the year going around the world looking at films, we talk about a certain set of films. I get uh, tips from them, and and then sometimes during the festival, I don't hear about those films being talked about as much. And so I'll, I'll mention a couple. Rasha Salty, our uh, programmer who programs from the Middle East and uh, and Africa, um, uh, was really in love with a film this year called The Idol um, that is uh, based on a true story about uh, a man from Gaza who won a singing contest, uh, the kind of a, a Middle East equivalent of, of American Idol. And I know my uh, colleague Diana Sanchez, who programs from Latin America, it's, uh, Spain and Portugal, was very excited about a film from Spain called Truman, another uh, dog story about a man who is uh, terminally ill and wants to find a home for his dog. It's really good. I'm crying story. already. <laughs> I know. Well, the, the, I will say that one of the things that I like about staying at Toronto, as long as I do, is a lot of people do leave after that first weekend on the industry side, but. Uh, it opens things up when when certain professional responsibilities mandate that you pay attention to these bigger titles once you get beyond that hump it's great to look after stuff that isn't necessarily gathering that kind of attention i mean there there are films that are being recommended to me another one that tom didn't mention being through you princess which i can't wait to see it sounds like it's getting all kinds of different reactions a kind of uh, internet uh, singer whose career takes off story. Um, th- those c- those are the movies that I I live to discover. I mean, it's just so much more exciting to go after something that 
by virtue of telling one other person about it, you are contributing to the life of this thing, and then maybe on some level contributing to the larger conversation about movies. And uh, there, there's another movie I saw recently called Land of Mine. It's a, a Dutch a Dutch film about um, sort of uh, the immediate aftermath of World War II when a bunch of German POWs are forced to go clean up landmines that, that have been left by the German army all across Europe. And uh, it's, it's almost... I'm hearing good things about that. It's I almost like a post-war hurt locker or something. I mean, it's a terrific sense of tension throughout the movie. So that's an, another one that I, I would definitely recommend. I was just curious about the foreign race. It seems like Son of Saul is the movie that everyone is talking about, um, and I've heard a little bit about Ixcanol. What other titles do you, uh, that are in Toronto do you sort of expect to be competitors in that race? I think The Wave is the one from Norway, which is about a tsunami that comes up and, and engulfs uh, a town, and I'm, I'm actually hoping I get to see that before I go. I, it looks great in the trailer, at any rate. Another one I haven't seen that, that uh, won the Uncertain Regard section at Cannes is Rams. I think that one has been sort of... That was playing well at Telluride. Right. So that, that's another one. So another. Absolutely. And uh, not playing here, but in the race, is Brazil's uh, The Second Mother uh, from Anna Moilart, uh, which is a strong contender, I would think. I put Son of Saul at the very top of the list there, though. That That's the thing. I, I can't imagine anything catching up with it. And, it, and it really, you got to see it to believe it. It's not just the Holocaust slot. It's I worry how people he show, will how he shoots that. it. Yeah, it's it's such a such a I mean it I would love to see it become more than the foreign language contender and, and sort of evolve into a bigger a bigger player in that sense. But maybe not just an award season conversation. It should be considered a, ma- a major movie this year. What's really fun, I mean not Toronto oriented, but what's fun is is um the the countries that haven't declared yet include France and Italy. So I believe Nanny Moretti's um, movie is playing here. That was in Cannes. It's called Mama. Mia Madre. Mia Madre, okay. And then um, the uh, French one, is it going to be Pan from Jacques Odiard, which is playing here, which I love? Is it going to be uh, the Deplachin, um, which was in Fortnite? My Golden Years. Uh, is it going to be the movie where Vincent um, Landon, is that how you say it? He won Best Actor um, for the Brise film. Measure of a Man. And th- those are the contenders for the French, uh, apparently. That would be a great category right there if they could submit more than one. Those are all really strong movies, so plenty of stuff. I mean, to The Assassin was submitted, uh, the Ho Shashen from from Taiwan which is a beautiful movie, which I highly recommend everybody see if they can. Um, I put it in a category called Artfully Arcane, where it belongs. In other words, my kind of thing. I loved it, too. Um, I don't know if either of you have seen Suffragette yet, but um, there's... uh, I've lost my window. Um, You were talking earlier, Eric, about Spotlight being submitted as an ensemble cast at the awards season. I was wondering if you think Suffragette could go the same way. Well, they are both ensemble movies, but Suffragette is much more Carrie Mulligan's show. I don't think that anybody could really make the case against that. If you look at the, back to the marketing question, if you look at the materials, you think maybe Meryl Streep is kind of a, a major player in it. She's basically in one scene. Tiny. Yeah, but she kind of made the she movie happen. She carries her role. It, it has to happen. Um, and I think uh, I agree with you. Carrie Mulligan is, is in, I would say, for Suffragette. In a, in a really significant way. I mean, this is a movie 
directed by a woman that I think actually works a lot better than many people might expect. Uh, I actually think that movie's going to play with audiences and do very, very well. And the other one from um, the, the movie that might do well is Trumbo. Um, it looks like, oh, it's about the blacklist, and maybe it should be a, a TV movie or something. I mean, it's conventional. It's Jay Roach. But Jay Roach is good, and Brian Cranston is good, and he's playing a guy who's a real hero. And I loved it. I wanted to uh, close by mentioning uh, the recent passing of, of one of Criterion's founders, uh, William Becker, uh, who was somebody who I think had a significant impact on what we consider to be uh, serious film culture today. And the fact that the Criterion concept is something that even non-movie buffs know about is one of those really dramatic achievements in the ability to contribute in a substantial way to how we talk about art. And um, I, I mean, I, I just, I'm, I'm never, it never ceases to amaze me how well Criterion has, has continued to evolve into the 21st century. The fact that everybody watches Criterions on Hulu now is something that's incredibly valuable for all kinds of different movies in, in film history. And for people like us, I, I would say it's, it's uh, always great to see new movies being added to the Criterion pantheon that we care about. They have extraordinary taste and... Uh, a sense of film history that they respect and cherish. And uh, that's what's so great uh, about Criterion, as well as these very high standards for uh, making sure that their products are as exquisite as possible. So we'll see which films this year deserve the Criterion treatment in the years to come. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for being here, everybody. You can applaud so they know you liked it. <laughs> <laughs>